I'm Michael Joyce with healthnewsreview.org. And just like last year, we thought it would be worthwhile to take a look back at some of the podcasts we produced this year and pull out some of the quotes we feel really captured the zeitgeist of this, our last year of publication. If there's an underlying theme here, I'd say it's wisdom, insights from some very thoughtful and hardworking people who think deeply about healthcare. This first quote is a great starting point. It's by Dr. Andy Lazarus. He's been an internist on the East Coast for over 25 years. He's talking about the so-called quality indicators that get imposed on doctors by insurance providers and others that often end up hurting, not helping, the shared decisions made by patients and their providers. I, I think that there is a harm for people over-treating because we're basing our treatment strategies on guidelines rather than on what the patient is telling us. If I just tell them to get the mammogram, tell them to get the colonoscopy, refer them to a few other doctors, then I have done myself a service. But that's a huge disservice to the patient. The patient now is, does not have a relationship with you at all. You might as well be a robot. So there's the danger of over-treating. There's also the danger of under-treating, neglecting what the patient is actually telling you, which is really the clue to what's wrong with the patient. And when we, when we take our ears off what the patient's telling us, then we're going to miss some really important information and patient might have a problem that we're not going to pick up. So yeah, that the harm the harm is a real problem. And, and the great irony that I always talk about is that this is supposed to be considered quality. These are quality indicators. And, and it's really accomplishing exactly the opposite. Doing the exact opposite of what's really needed, what really helps people, came up in my discussion with veteran healthcare journalist Andrew Holtz. We were talking about all the hype surrounding the microbiome and the belief that we can manipulate the good and bad bacteria in our bodies to take control of our health. And more specifically, what role the media has played in making this not only one of the hottest news topics of the past few years, but also a topic incredibly prone to sloppy and downright misleading reporting. And I really fault a lot of journalists and the model of the news business for going with the excitement rather than the value. Uh, and I think that, in part, that has hurt the long-term health of the news business. Because when you constantly say things that fail to come true, people begin to just tune it out. Sure, that... The clickbait works in the short run, but in the long run, it actually destroys the credibility of the news organizations, and I think it's a real reason why people tune out and aren't following through, and I think that really not only hurts the credibility, the moral standing, the high-minded hopes and dreams of journalism, but I think it's a bad business decision because you train people that there's nothing there. It's not just journalism that struggles with credibility and moral standing. So does our healthcare industry. This summer, we produced a podcast entitled 
Too Much Healthcare, in which we explored the worrisome double whammy of overdiagnosis and overtreatment, and the dangers of labeling too many people as sick, or shall we say pre-sick. Our interviewee was Ray Moynihan, an investigative journalist turned healthcare researcher, who's a global leader in this area. Somehow the conversation took a turn toward medical evidence, the evidence we can trust when trying to make healthcare choices, and the evidence that we can't. I asked Ray, point blank, what do you think is the leading cause of polluted medical evidence? Without a shadow of a doubt, the biggest source of that pollution is industry sponsorship of trials of their own products. How absurd. It's the wrong way to generate evidence uh, that the results of those studies we know have a sort of systemic or systematic bias in them that is polluting and distorting uh, the medical evidence base. And that may well be one of the biggest uh, challenges for medicine. If it wants to maintain public credibility, it must address that dirty secret. Uh, it's, 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 it's entanglement with industry um, that, that is terribly corrupting. I'd like to bring up an important point here. When it comes to our health, the stakes are high, so the bar should be set high. Accurate, balanced, and complete healthcare information. What motivates us is this we want to improve the public dialogue on healthcare. So let me share a couple of quotes with you that illustrate why this is so important to us. The first is by a woman named Catherine O'Brien, who has stage four breast cancer. I interviewed her for a podcast about the language of cancer. We were exploring the commonly used phrase, cancer survivor, and trying to reconcile it with what she called the very unsettling reality that about 40,000 American women will die this year from metastatic breast cancer. Think about that. If I said 40,000 metastatic breast cancer survivors died in the United States last year, how could that be true? I mean, that country, if they survived, why, if they were survivors, why did they die? You know, if we suggest that everything, it just takes some stick-to-itiveness to defeat cancer, that's not fair. I mean, that's, that, that really minimizes the situation of thousands and thousands of uh, cancer patients. Uh, cancer is not, as much as we want to personify it, I'm going to kick cancer's ass. That's not how it works. But where do we even get the idea that's how cancer works? Well, lots of places. Online, our providers, our neighbors, the evening news, billboards, and on and on. And from ads like this one, from MD Anderson, which last year was rated by U.S. News & World Report as the number one cancer center in the country. We're not scared of you anymore. We know you better than you know yourself. My dad will survive you. See, this is a fight. It's a battle. And we're an army, thousands strong. And cancer? You're going to lose. And we are going to win. What does an ad like this do to people? Does it offer false hope? Could it hurt people who have had people near and dear to them die of cancer? 
These are legitimate questions to ponder, but instead of giving you my take, let me share with you this story told to us by Jerome Hoffman. He's a UCLA doctor who's worked in emergency rooms for over 35 years. He's trying to illustrate how media messages can influence our expectations, sometimes in heart-wrenching ways. So we did a prolonged resuscitation, which we often do in this circumstance with a child, but it, it was obvious that this wasn't going to work. And at, at some point, I called the code, that is, I stopped the resuscitation. And the father was a very young man and was very, very upset, as you can imagine. Um, he, he put his face next to mine and he screamed at me, what do you mean? And he, he threw his arm out and uh, in a, a gesture that... Uh, intended to show everything in the room. And he said, look at all this stuff you got. What do you mean you can't save her? And it was a very powerful moment because what he was really saying was he had been taught by all of us and by television and by advertising and by the healthcare industry that we have magic powers and and we have magic equipment. And um, it made it inconceivable to him that we couldn't help his desperately ill child. The dangling of false hope is something we come across nearly every week. We all know what it smells and tastes like, and its appeal. For many with a quote, stake in the game, a crass phrase I feel has no place in healthcare, but it illustrates my point. It's an effective tactic for accomplishing their goals, whatever they may be. We ran into this full force in a podcast we produced back in September called The Problematic Promise of a Cure for Alzheimer's. First, I'll play an ad by the Alzheimer's Association, and then a response by a neurologist named Peter Whitehouse, who finds dangling the hope of a silver bullet for Alzheimer's to be irresponsible. You have dreams, goals for the future. What if they were stolen from you by Alzheimer's? This cruel disease is the nation's sixth leading cause of death, affecting more than five million Americans. The Alzheimer's Association has been behind every major advancement and continues to lead the fight against Alzheimer's. We won't rest until we have a cure. Join us. Go to alz.org. At, at, the, at the core of this issue, the question is, what are we trying to achieve? Are we trying to take a 95-year-old person who has a diagnosis of Alzheimer's and revert them, cure, eradicate uh, those memory problems? We don't even ask seriously what a cure would look like. The word cure is so powerful, it shuts off people's ability to think critically about where we should prioritize our resources. That said, the Alzheimer's Association itself knows that the easiest way to raise money is to, in my mind, irresponsibly make claims that we will find an effective intervention. So this overemphasis on biological approaches in general, medical approaches, is to me problematic. The promises that we will have magic bullets in a short time horizon are irresponsible. Hype, hope, dreams. You can see and almost feel their allure. 
especially when forced to accept that medical science is a slow, methodical, and cautious pursuit, charged with untangling something immensely complex. Tapping into emotions is far easier. But what happens when emotions get ahead of evidence? We see this a lot, and one of the most clear examples is how the media has jumped on the precision medicine bandwagon, usually pitching its awesome potential, but rarely questioning its limitations. Here's veteran NPR reporter Richard Harris. These sorts of things like precision medicine come along and they become sort of the backbone for, for funding, for sort of framing issues. Uh, companies are in this in a really big way. Uh, there's so many scientists out there who love to crunch big data, and here's a, here's a juicy opportunity for them, or so it seems. And so there's, so there's a lot of money pouring into this, a lot of interest pouring into this, and a lot of federal grants pouring into this area as well. So when you see that kind of momentum behind a movement and realize that there is, it, you know, it's not all just about the science being great, but there's money behind it, there's sort of a trend behind it. I think that is a time for journalists to be more cautious and say, you know, how much of this is real and how much of this is hype? Money. Money isn't the elephant in the room here. It often is the room. As you might imagine, a big part of our job is separating the marketing from the medicine. It's what we do. But can the general public always be expected to know the difference? These next two people you'll hear from know this conundrum very well. First is Tim Caulfield a professor of health law and policy who researches the disconnect between what medical science knows and what popular culture believes. Here he uses Gwyneth Paltrow's wildly popular lifestyle brand, Goop, as an example of using, quote, science to sell snake oil. What people like Goop and Gwyneth uh, and, um, you know, anyone is really marketing an unproven therapy, uh, what they're doing now is they're using that scientific language, right, to sell in order to give this sort of veneer of legitimacy. So you have stem cell researchers, you know, plodding along, hoping for a positive result. Meantime, you get these people pushing unproven therapies, leveraging the language of stem cell research to say, hey, I've got a therapy that works right now. And they're using the excitement around stem cell research, you know, the science exploitation, as I call it, uh, in order to market their products. And you're seeing it happening now with the microbiome, in fact, the raw water people, I don't know if you saw this, they market, one of the ways they're trying to market their product is to leverage microbiome language, right? You see it with genetics all of the time. And, you know, my favorite example is quantum physics, right? <laughs> quantum physics is being used to explain everything. So you have this slow-moving real science, and then the language of that real science is being leveraged by, by the the marketers of unproven therapies to to get their stuff across. This water is incredibly naturally pure. It has to be a healing tonic. It has to be because we're water creatures. I have customers that swear by it. Science ploitation. It's a great word for a diabolical tactic, a common one that has found a happy home, social media. When it comes to spreading medical information, it seems social media is somewhere between a great opportunity and a giant cesspool. Tim Caulfield says he reluctantly jumped in, but is glad he did, mainly so he can be an antidote to the Gwyneths and Dr. Oz's of the world. Deanna Atai, a UCLA breast surgeon, feels the same way. 
I asked her why she's so active on Twitter, Facebook, and her blog. Because I've seen the difference that it can make. I've seen the difference, especially in the VCSM community, the breast cancer social media community, the difference that an engaged physician can make in terms of patient education, patient reassurance, um, and patient empowerment. And we hear over and over again that patients want us there. And I just feel it's it's just part of my responsibility as a physician. It's it's just a, an extension of what I do in the office. And social media allows the individual physician to get out good quality evidence-based information to a potentially large audience and help combat or dilute a lot of the misinformation or false news, if you will, regarding medical procedures and diseases that's, that's so prevalent on the internet. This misinformation brings us to a natural close for this podcast and this year and the 12 plus years we've been scrutinizing healthcare news. It still blows my mind that we've been the only website in the world who, for the past 12 years, has written over 6,000 articles tackling this misinformation head on. And we couldn't have done any of this work without the wisdom of people like those you just heard from. We are so grateful to them and the people who came to our site, many of whom wanted to clean up the polluted stream of healthcare information as much as we did. The fact that we're closing up shop is not so much an ending as it is an important start. I was reminded of this talking to Dr. Stephen Woloshin, an internist and healthcare researcher from Dartmouth, who had this to say about maintaining the integrity of healthcare information as it flows from its source to the public. There are problems at each level of the journey of information that you're describing, and um, so that we need the researchers to do a better job in how they report their results. We need the journalists to do a better job about being discerning about what to cover and what not to cover. There's lots of things that are too you know, early or um, not ready for prime time that shouldn't be covered. Uh, and, and when they do cover things, to be clear about including caveats, make sure they, ca- they quantify things, all the things that are in your health news review uh, checklist. But then the public has a responsibility too because there's all sorts of medical information out there of varying quality and the public really needs to, to work at being a skeptical reader. Otherwise, they're going to be misled. Before I sign off, I'd like to break the rules a bit and throw in an 11th quote, in the 11th hour no less. A few weeks back, I interviewed Gary Schweitzer, the publisher and founder of healthnewsreview.org, otherwise known as my boss. We got to talking about how a lot of news and a lot of us tend to run from uncertainty, but that there's something to be said for embracing uncertainty. That seems like the note to close on. Here's what Gary said. If we try to make everything that is not into breakthroughs, we lose appreciation for what science really is. Science embraces uncertainty, attacks uncertainty, says that's why we're in business. Well, that's not the way it's ever conveyed, hardly ever in the news. And this is a harm to public understanding, public comprehension, but more than that, the actions that members of the general public may take based on what they hear and perceive is a certain final answer that is nothing of the sort. 
And that is not the recipe for an informed healthcare consumer who's capable of being in a truly shared decision-making environment. And that's sad. This podcast, our 50th, is a production of healthnewsreview.org. It's produced at our institutional home, the School of Public Health at the University of Minnesota, along the banks of the mighty Mississippi River. I'm Michael Joyce, and on behalf of our entire team, thanks for listening.